Amen. Lord, we thank you and praise you that indeed Jesus is our friend forever. We can't wait, Lord, to see you face to face, to spend eternity worshiping and walking with you. And Lord, it's beyond our imagination. Lord, I feel like we've had a taste of heaven this morning as we've drawn near to you in worship. Father, may you continue on through our time in your word. May you be our teacher this morning. We magnify, lift up that indescribable name. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. What a sweet time of worship, amen? Amen. A couple quick announcements. Uh, First of all, the three and a half minute message that was in there in the middle, that's Uh, An older message that Pastor Chuck said was the greatest message ever preached, and I tend to agree with it. And uh, I listen to that every single morning when I start my day. I'll tell you what, it gets your eyes back on who's really the one that is indescribable, amen? And how great our God is. And the guy's name, he's gone to be with the Lord, his name is Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. God bless him, all right. I think if anybody's interested in getting that, we have a link we can send you, and, and I have it on my laptop or on my computer in the office. I just watch it every morning. Uh, one quick announcement that got left out. There is, there, we do have a men's softball team, and we need to get people to sign up today if you want to play. It's a great time of fellowship. Wives come out and watch. It's a good time and good way to be salt and light to the world around us as well. And uh, after one, I guess, humiliating season of fast pitch, we're going back to slow pitch. So I guess we can all play. I didn't play fast pitch. I thought, you know, I might get hurt or something. So if you guys are interested, Doug Wilson will be back at the men's table afterward. All right, let's pick up in Philippians. And by the way, it's good to be back. Missed you guys last week. Um, got really sick, but God is good. And I, I hear good reports. And even though Pastor Joe had short notice, heard it was a good word. So praise the Lord. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue to look at this epistle of joy. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And the word joy is used 19 times in this letter. And it's written to a church that Paul had founded years earlier and written in response to a a generous gift he received from them. So a letter filled with joy coming from people that, you know, writing to people that had sent you a great gift while you're you're in a difficult situation seems to make sense until you realize that Paul was sitting in prison when he wrote this letter. He was about to face Caesar Nero. There was a potential that he was even going to be put to death. And in the midst of all that, he still wrote this letter filled with great joy. And so we've been talking the last few weeks of how you and I can have joy, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what people may throw our way, no matter what difficulties of life may come along, and using this letter as a great example of how to have that incredible joy. In chapter 1, we talked about how to have joy in spite of your circumstances. Here's Paul being beaten, having been beaten, now imprisoned, and saw his circumstances as an opportunity for the gospel. How do you have joy in your circumstances? By being single-minded, by being focused on the Lord, by having an eternal perspective on life. Guys, we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive, amen? And where we spend eternity is a lot more important than how we spend every moment of every day. But realize that every moment of every day has been divinely put there by God. And when we understand that, we won't allow our circumstances to bring us down. Understand who's in control. He's a faithful God. 
And so, first of all, how do you have joy in your circumstances? By first trusting in the sovereignty of God. You need to know that God is in control of all things. That God that was just described in that most powerful of messages is your God and your Savior and your King and your best friend. And He knows everything that's going on in your life. He cares about the details. And I'll tell you what, when you understand who's in control, it brings peace no matter how difficult our circumstances. We can trust in the sovereignty of God. Second of all, we, we are to live in the light of eternity. Again, having that eternal perspective. And then thirdly, by putting our faith in action. Realizing again that these circumstances, God is going to use them for His glory if we will simply let Him. Paul was in prison and what did he say? They keep chaining me up to a different guard every six hours. Witnessing opportunity. Amen? I've got a captive audience. Six hours of Jesus, that's what you're going to get from me. And you know what, I love it that the Apostle Paul saw every opportunity as an opportunity for the gospel. Get in a car accident, opportunity for the gospel. Laid off at work, opportunity for the gospel. Everything that you go through in life is an opportunity for God to be glorified if we will just simply step back and trust in the sovereignty of God to know that He's in control and nothing happens by chance in His kingdom. Well, this morning... We're going to continue on in chapter 2, moving from looking at joy in spite of our circumstances to joy in spite of people. One of the things that can rob us of our joy big time is people. Amen? And you know what? We can be the people that rob others of their joy as well. You know, we always want to think someone else is robbing me, but sometimes we're robbing others. And you know what? We can do it by our actions, by our attitudes, by our selfishness, our pride, our anger, our bitterness. And you know, Paul was sitting in prison when he wrote this letter. He had people going out on the streets trying to heap more of a burden upon him. And what did he say? Hey, as long as they're preaching the gospel, even if they're trying to do it with selfish motives to harm me, that's okay. Let the name of the Lord be glorified. He had that perspective that it didn't matter what people said because he knew that God was faithful. Crowds mocking him, he saw them as a mission field. You know, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is usually the one you hit, right? And usually the people most stirred up about you standing up for Christ are those who are the most convicted of their own need for a Savior. Amen? And so when people come against you and they mock and they murmur and they, uh, hey, opportunity, God must be speaking to them. There's conviction at work, amen? And so understanding that what is going on in the hearts of people, and again, Caesar Nero was about to bring him before him, and Nero was a guy who, no doubt, there was a very real possibility that Paul would die. And Paul still writes about having a submissive mind. How do you have joy in spite of people? By having a submissive mind, esteeming others greater than yourself. We're going to see that in this morning's text. And we're going to see the ultimate example of that in Jesus Christ. That He humbled Himself. He being God, humbled Himself. You know, one of the biggest things that causes division, both within the church and in us trying to reach out to others, is pride and arrogance. Too often in the church today, it's about my needs and my wants. People bounce from church to church because that last church didn't have exactly everything I need. You know what? You're never going to find the church that has everything you need because your needs are not found in a body of people. Your needs are met in Christ. Amen? And if you, you know what? If you found the perfect church, if you went there, you'd mess it up by showing up. Amen? <laughs> the truth is that there are no perfect churches because they're all filled with people. And we're all self-centered. 
I mean, look at the world today. A guy makes a, ta- I, you know, I played football in college, and it amazes me. A guy will make a tackle eight yards down the field, which is not good. That means he ran all over you, and the guy will get up and pound his chest. Ah, right? You ever seen this? Go like this, like, you know, I'm, aren't I great? No, you just got burned, man. Sit down, right? But what happens is, too often, we're so wanting to focus on us. And it doesn't just happen on the football field, but people flaunt their wealth or their education or their position, or their title, making sure you call them doctor. I'm a doctor, you better call me doctor. Slow down, all right? You know what, it's okay to be called doctor, but you don't, we should not demand that people elevate us or call us with any title. Amen? And we see it in the world today, flaunting, peeing our chest. Esteem, we're to esteem others greater than ourselves, not ourselves greater than others. Greatness is not measured by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. And the world's got it all messed up. doesn't matter how many people know your name. I want everyone to know my name. I want to be famous. Right? You see this on TV. All these shows are about making sure everybody knows my name. You know what? We ought to be more worried about everybody knowing his name. That they know his name. That they know him in a personal and an intimate way. It shouldn't be all about me. You know, there's another little video I've seen called the Me Church. It's hilarious. It is the funniest thing. I might have to just show it because it's so funny. And it starts off by, you know, what, what about a church that it was completely and totally wrapped up in you? What about a church where everybody there called the shots? And they have some examples. And one woman says, well, you know, I get tired on Saturday nights. I'd like for church to start when I get there. No problem. From now on, we'll wait till you arrive and that's when church will start. And you go right down the list. Well, we want to have this at church, and we want to have that. And you know what? What happens is, sadly, the world's doing that today. We're sending out surveys to find out what people want in church instead of just doing what the Bible says church ought to be. We're too busy trying to please men and honor God. And God says, honor me. Don't try to please men. No one is more important than you. I'm always on my mind. How about you? I'm always thinking about me. We hate, about, we hate pride and arrogance in others, and yet we struggle with it ourselves. When you see it in somebody else, you go, man, that's disgusting. <laughs> and then we do it. Don't we? But the Bible says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so tragic and unwarranted when pride seeps into the church. It brings division within the body over secondary issues. Paul's writing this chapter to unify the Philippian believers. To get them back on the same page. We're going to see how we do that this morning. And it's not done by giving the people everything they want, but by getting their eyes back on Jesus. By getting them united in one focus, one heart, and one passion, not by giving them everything they need. On that Me Church video, one of them was, can I get a wax and a buff while I'm at church on my car? And it follows up, no, we'll give you a lube job and a tune-up too. Come on down to our church. Have a petting zoo out in the parking lot. Free hamburgers. You know, I mean, come on. We're so into the me thing, it shouldn't be about me. It should be about him. Guys, a source of true joy is not fitting in with the world, but right standing before God. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to use the world's methods to try to reach the world with the kingdom of God. We're to use God's methods to reach the, kingdom, the world with their desperate need for a Savior. Amen? We all know that's true. we got hard chairs in this church. If we were worried about you guys, you'd all be sitting on barca loungers or something this morning. <laughs> 
So, we're going to talk about how to have joy in spite of people. In spite of their attitudes and actions towards us. And we overcome it by having a submitted mind. By having, again, esteeming others greater than ourselves. So in this chapter, we'll see this week and then next week, four examples of submitted minds. This morning, we're going to see Jesus. Next week, we'll see Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. So just two sections this morning. Unity through humility and Jesus, the ultimate example of submission. So unity through humility and then Jesus, the ultimate example of submission. Let's begin in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Unity through humility. If we're going to be effective as the body of Christ, we need to be like-minded. Amen? We need to have the same heart, same passion. I'm not talking about the Calvary Chapel body of Christ. I'm talking about the body of Christ. The body of all believers. We need to be like-minded. And he says there, Therefore, when you see therefore, you ask, What's it there for? Amen. So in light of what Paul had communicated, whenever he says therefore, he's reflecting upon what he just said. And what Paul had just told them, he had ended with an exhortation in the previous chapter to stand fast, to be of one spirit, of one mind, striving for one faith, with no fear of the enemy, willing to suffer for Christ's sake. And he says, in light of all that, in light of the exhortation that I've given you, in light of your riches in Christ, in light of who you are in Him, He implies again, he's going to continue to expand upon that exhortation. And he says, if there is any consolation in Christ. The word if there would be better translated since. Since there is consolation in Christ. The word there for consolation in the Greek means to come alongside, to help, to counsel, to exhort, to encourage. So the word isn't translated, if there's any encouragement, or since there's encouragement in Christ. You know what? There's nothing more encouraging than to walk with Christ. There's nothing that can bring encouragement to discouragement than to know and walk with the Lord, to have intimate fellowship with Him. Then he says, if there is any consolation or encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, the word there for comfort, portrays the Lord coming close and whispering words of gentle cheer or tender counsel in a believer's ear. The word there for love, I'll give you one guess. What do you think it is? Agape. It is a selfless love. There's a comfort of love that comes from walking closely with the Lord. Our God is not a faraway God. Amen? If you think of God as being far away, you don't know our God. He is intimate and near. And He wants to have that comforting close close relationship with you where he whispers in your ear where he walks with you and talks with you along the narrow way of life our god is not far away and detached we are to be comforting one another as christ comforts us if there's any consolation in christ or encouragement any comfort of love if any fellowship of the spirit the word there for fellowship is koinonia and it speaks of the intimate relationship between believers Guys, I look forward to Sunday. I really do. And I look forward, not just because I'm going to get up here and talk to you, but I look forward to seeing you. I look forward to worshiping together. I look forward to that koinonia fellowship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? You guys are my family. We're family. We're more than just friends. 
And it says there's that intimate relationship that's provided by the fellowship that we have in the person of the Holy Spirit. Guys, can you imagine? Try to think sometimes. Imagine God up in heaven looking down at us. He's poured out His Spirit upon us. We have the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside of us. We're one in Christ. We're born again. We're going to heaven. And then we're bickering over nothing. How that must break the heart of God. Now, well, we're this. Our church has this. And we've got this. And, you know, oh, stop it already. We need to set aside all these secondary issues and point people to the cross of Christ. But, you know what? It doesn't matter which boat they get into as long as they get to shore. Amen? We're like-minded. We want to see people come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And we have that common fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If any, affection and mercy. The word for affection is kindness, compassion. The word for mercy is longing and pity. God has extended His deep affection and mercy to every believer. So, I, in, a, in a way of saying this in a simple way, let me translate this verse for you. In effect, since there is so much encouragement in Christ... Since His love is so tremendously persuasive, since the Holy Spirit brings us together in Christian fellowship, and since we are filled with this tender love and mercy, now how should we respond? In light of all of those truths that we have in common, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. I love that Paul says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. In John it says, I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. There's nothing I want more as a dad than to see my kids on fire for Jesus. I mean, man, I, I pray for that more than anything else. And you know what? I, there's nothing I love more than to see them being used for the kingdom of God. To see them doing things for, for the Lord. To see them worship. To see them do, you know, reaching out to their friends. Blesses me more than anything. And that's Paul's heart because he sees this congregation as his, quote, children in the faith, if you will. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. By being on the same page with the same heart. By having the mind of Christ. See things as He sees them. The word like-minded means to think the same way. And guys, we should be because we all have the same Holy Spirit living within us. Not only being like-minded, but having the same love. The same sacrificial love for each other that Christ has shown to us. The Lord says to love one another as Christ loves you. How much is that? Incredible. Next time you are thinking about how much you're worth, remember what was paid for you. Amen? That's how valuable you are to God. And we need to love one another in that same way. Aren't you glad that God doesn't break a relationship with you because you borrowed His lawnmower for too long? (laughs) You know, people don't talk to their neighbor anymore because he's had my clipping shears for a year and a half. You know what I mean? And we have these things where we break fellowship with people over the dumbest stuff. He did this. He said that. He talked. Oh, they didn't call me back. They didn't thank me enough. They didn't give me this. And there's division. We're to love each other the way Christ loves us. Amen? I'll tell you, that puts a heavy conviction upon my heart. that we, there, There's never a reason to walk away from somebody because Christ will not walk away from me, and I'm so thankful. Being of one accord, one mind. One accord means united in spirit, working together for a common goal as directed by the Lord. Of one mind, intent on one purpose. 
As you submit in obedience to Jesus Christ as the head of the body, we all should be moving in the same direction. What's Paul saying? He's telling the Philippian Christians, and it applies just as much to you and I today, since you are in Christ, you will have a love for other Christians because the Lord your Savior died for them just as He died for you. Since you have that God-given compassion and affection for them, then you should be intent on having a, a, a heart, one in purpose, with them. The church of mature believers is united in vision, living in harmony with one another, heading in the same direction to both share the gospel and to walk the narrow path to heaven. United in calling, in vision, in passion, in love, in thoughts, in aims, co-laborers, fellow, fellow soldiers in Christ, working together for a common cause as, in, as one with the Lord, not divided by our own individual will, desires, and pride. Think of it this way. We all have gifts, but a symphony, they all play different instruments, and some of them play even maybe different notes to bring the harmony together, but when they all do it, the way they're called to, it produces a beautiful sound. And the same is true in the body of Christ. We're all called differently, but we ought to be playing toward the same direction. As some of the Philippian believers were not getting along with each other, Paul now is going to advise them how. Okay, we've been called to unity. We're called to be like-minded. We're called to have the same love. We're called to have that common fellowship. How do we do that? How in the world do we do that? It's so hard to get along with others sometimes. And we're going to see in these next two verses the key to being like-minded and of one accord, to having that joy in spite of people, the key to it, are two words that aren't real popular in the world today. Humility and submission. What do you want to do in life? I want to grow up and be submitted to everyone I know. I've never heard anybody say that. I want to be in charge. I hear that a lot. Amen? I want to be the, big, I want to be the head cheese, man. I want, everybody, I want everybody to follow me. Know my name. You know, I want all the tabloids in the grocery store to be talking about my latest breakup, right? You know, I want to be so famous... And we all want to be served. But contrary to the world's perspective, true joy does not come, again, from being served, but from serving others. Remember the acronym. You've all heard it. Jesus, others, yourself. J-O-Y. You want to have joy? Jesus first. Others second. Yourself last. Chapter 1 was putting Jesus first. Chapter 2 is putting others next. Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. If you think about it, the cause of virtually every conflict and the source of division, both among believers and even with unbelievers, is selfishness and pride. James 4 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Disagreements come about because we are so often are just thinking about ourselves, my desires, my needs, my comfort, how things are going to impact me. The word selfish ambition is that which is done to advance or promote myself. You ever done that? Absolutely, amen? Sometimes we'll even do stuff that, well, I'll be seen doing that and it'll look like I'm serving but I'll get promoted because I'm serving in a way that people will see it. And you know what? You're not getting over on God, amen? You think God knows? God knows your motivation. God knows your heart. He says, let nothing be done out of selfish ambition and conceit. So selfish ambition, again, is that 
it, the word could also be interpreted strife. As Christians, we should never act from our own separate selfish interests. The result is division. But from our common bond as brothers and sisters in Christ. The next word is conceit. And nobody wants to be called conceited. But we've all dealt with it in our own lives. Amen? Because what is conceit? It's thinking too highly of oneself. I'm the only one that's ever done that. It's thinking too highly of oneself. The dictionary defines conceit as an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability, importance, or wit. You know what happens when you get conceited? You get easily offended. Because all of a sudden, you're pretty, you're pretty stinking important. How do you think you are talking to me that way? Do you know who I am? You know, just once I want to say, yeah, you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. That's who you are. But so often what happens, we walk around, we're so puffed up with our accomplishments. By the way, without Him we can do nothing. So He gets all the glory, and if you did anything, God should be glorified for it. So sit down already, right? Too often we're puffing ourselves up, we're conceited, we're arrogant, and we can even do it in ministry or in the church. We can think we've arrived because we've accomplished something. He says, let everything, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through arrogance. The truth is that being conceited is trying to do the very single thing that Satan did to get cast out of heaven. It's trying to take the preeminent place. There's only one that can be on the throne of your life. It's either you or it's the Lord. Choose one. He won't share the throne with anybody. Contrary to what the world might say, man's problem is not a lack of self-esteem. Amen? People esteem themselves way too much. That's the problem. If you were humble, you would not get offended. If you were submitted, you would not get offended. If you esteemed others greater than yourself, you wouldn't be blown away by what so-and-so said at work about you. It's okay. God is still in control. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Lowliness of mind, the word in Greek means having a humble opinion of yourself. You know what? All you need to do is look at yourself in comparison to Jesus, and that ought to solve that issue. You'll have a very humble opinion of yourself very quickly. You're all sinners, amen? Is that true or not? Okay, we're all sinners. I'm not going back to that church. They told me I was a sinner. I'm going back to that me church. I like that better. They told me how wonderful I was. The truth is that we are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. If we don't see our sin, we'll never see a need for a Savior. If we don't understand we're sinners, we'll never be convicted about our sin. And sin separates us from God. There cannot be one sin in heaven or there's earth part two. So you and I have got problems. So we should be humbled by our sin, amen? Humbled to realize, you know what? I need Jesus. I need redemption. I need forgiveness. And it's not going to come by my good works. So lowliness of mind is an understanding of who I am. It brings about modesty and humility. A humble person is not one who thinks bad of himself. He's one who simply doesn't think of himself at all. That's humility. Humility is not, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. You know, hey, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Praise God. But it's taking myself out of the equation. 
Next time you have a problem with somebody, take yourself out of the equation and see how quickly you solve it. Well, if it wasn't, if I was, then if it didn't have, well, yeah, that we could fix it. But too often, but I'm not gonna, and you're not gonna, and he told me, and I'm not bending, and I'm not bowing, and I'm, that's it. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit. Let each esteem others better than himself. That's so contrary to the world that esteems itself. The self-assertion, imposing of one's will on another is called leadership by the world. Guy's a leader. Poses his will on everybody. Wow, I want to follow that guy. Not me. Biblical leadership is not self-asserting and imposing your will, but it's the humble submission in service to God and then to others. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. He says, let each esteem others greater than himself. That's the definition of true humility. Not esteem self, but esteem others. Esteem others is as superior to ourselves. Imagine if everybody viewed everyone else as being superior to them. Everyone would be looked up to and nobody would be looked down on. That's God's design. Esteem other people's time is more important than yours. Esteem other people's possessions is more valuable than yours. Esteem other people's feelings is more important than yours. Esteem other people's hearts and desires as being more important than yours. You'll be amazed how quickly all the strife and struggles in this world will pass away. Too often we're more concerned about making sure I get mine. I'm not going to let anybody walk all over me. You ever heard said that before? We're going to get to Jesus in a minute. Did Jesus let people walk on him? Big time. And we think we're, we're asserting ourselves, I'm not going to be a doormat for anybody. It's not being a doormat. It's having a servant's heart. And realizing that eternity is far more important than how somebody treats me in the next five minutes. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not out for only your own interest, but also for the interest of others. This is the verse 3 in action. You esteem others better than yourself. How do you do that? By looking out for, the, the, for others and their interest even more than your own. The word there for look is to fix one's eyes upon, to direct one's attention to. More than just kind thoughts about others, but godly sacrificial actions in seeking to bless and minister to the needs of others. You know what happens when you have that attitude? No longer will you be easily offended and say, what are you looking at and what do you think, who do you think you are? But Lord, help me to know how to minister to this person. What can I do to help? Well, this person's going through it, having a tough day. How can I love on them? How can I share Jesus with them? You know, and, and you know what, guys? It's easy to say you want to be a servant. You find out if you are one when people start treating you like one. How do you respond? Well, I think I am a servant. Yep, that's exactly right. Amen? That's what we ought to be. Hey, I, I'm going to just be real transparent with you. I'll just be as transparent with you as I can be. You know, sometimes as a pastor, you're tired. Believe it or not, that happens. I don't reflect it very often, but you get tired. And sometimes the phone rings at 11.30 at night after you've had a 16-hour day, and you're exhausted. And there's, your flesh doesn't want to answer the phone, because you're tired. And then the verse comes to mind, esteem others greater than yourself. It's not about you. What a privilege it is that someone's calling you and you get to minister to them on my behalf. Get the phone, right? <laughs> and you know what? It's always a blessing. 
No one ever serves in his bum they served. Sometimes it's hard to get you to serve, get us to serve, but once we do, we're always blessed, aren't we? You always look back and wow, glad I picked up the phone. What a privilege. I'll rest when I get to heaven, amen? Our faith should not only be rewarded through the words we speak, but the attitudes and actions it produces in our ministry to others. They shall know us by the love we have one for another, the Bible says. Not living for ourselves, but laying down our lives for others. Can you imagine what would happen if every Christian just started living this way? Everybody in your neighborhood would know you were saved because you would just be serving everybody. All your coworkers would know you were saved because you would take the worst shift when it was necessary. You would be the one to jump in and help them even when it's not your job description. You would be the one reaching out in love to the neighbor across the street who you've never met who's going through a difficult time making them dinner and mowing their lawn or whatever it might be. Just serving people. And you know what? They'll see Jesus in us when we simply lay down our lives and our will and our comfort and our desires and start having the heart that Jesus Christ had for us. So unity comes through humility. The heart of a servant. Burden for others. Now the rest of the chapter... We're going to see four examples this morning. We're only going to look at one, but we're going to look at the greatest one. We're going to look at Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Submission, humility. In these seven verses, we're going to see four characteristics of a submitted heart or submissive mind as exemplified in Jesus Christ. As we go through, I'll point them out. And I want you to know this too. Verses 5 through 11 is believed to be by many a hymn by the early, sang by the early church. And I'll tell you what, it'd be a great one. Verses 5 through 11, these are great verses written in poetic language. And while it's primarily an exhortation to others, it's known to be one of the greatest theological statements about Jesus Christ ever written. What He accomplished when He became a man and died and rose again. And while affirming His humanity, it presents Him in His deity. This is an awesome portion of Scripture. It says there in verse 5, So how do you and I have this humble mind? Here's how. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know why they started calling Christians Christians? They were mocking them. Did you know that? And when they called them Christians, basically they said, You're just a bunch of little Christs. You're a bunch of little Christs. You know what? Lord, help that we would be little Christs. Amen? Lord, help that we would be a reflection of Him in such a way. And he says here, we're to think the way Christ did. What did Christ think about? What was on His mind? You know what His heart was? Will of the Father and a burden for the lost. There it is. Will of the Father, burden for the lost. Will of the Father, reaching out to people in love. There's the mind of Christ. Let that same mind be in each of us. We should have that same attitude about serving others, about doing the will of the Father, about hating sin but loving the sinner. Guys, there's no one who sins so much that God doesn't love them anymore. He still loves them, amen? And so should we. We should never be self-righteous. We should never be arrogant. We should never think we're better than anybody else because we truly are one beggar leading another beggar to the bread and nothing more than that. We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And so, in these next six verses, we're going to see this hymn is divided in two stanzas, if you will. First, Christ's humiliation, and then His exaltation. 
And look what it says here about Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is a verse that people have struggled with for hundreds of years. But let me help clarify it for you. The word being there stresses his nature. Being in the form of God. Being, his continuous state or condition that cannot be changed. The word form there is the outward expression of an inward nature. It signifies the the form which truly and fully expresses the being underneath it. The word there for form is morph. You ever heard that? Something morphing, right? Well, guess what? Jesus is the form of God. How is that possible? How can Jesus be the form of God? Of God, exhibiting his nature, his outward expression of his inward, unchanging character. Says there that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word there for robbery is something to be attained or clutched or grasped. Being equal with God is not something Jesus had to attain because Jesus is God. Amen? Wasn't something to be attained, achieved, reached out for, latched on to. He didn't call it robbery to be equal with God because He is God. He didn't have to attain it, achieve it, grasp it. Jesus is God. Same in quality, same in character. Jesus always has been God. Did you know that? Jesus didn't come to being in the, in the manger. We're going to see in a few verses. He's the Alpha and the Omega. What a great... I wish I could describe him to you. Amen? I mean, what a great example of trying to describe Jesus. You could fill every library, every computer, every book ever written, pile them a thousand miles deep, cover the entire globe, and you couldn't begin to describe Jesus Christ. He always has been. He always will be. He's God. He's perfect. He's holy. And you know what? I love Jesus. It says so clearly here, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Because in every sense, Jesus Christ is God. But look at this. Talk about humility. Yet though almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-perfect, holy God, he thought of others and not himself. Look what it says in verse 7. But made himself of no reputation. Now let me ask you a question. If you were all-powerful, all-knowing... What would your reputation be like on this planet right now? I guarantee you everyone would know your name. Amen? I'm all-powerful. Got problems with the weather? Just give me a call. I'll fix it. I can wipe out that hurricane. It's not an issue. Anybody sick? I'll just... I'll fix them, right? And you know, we could do that. You know what? We would. The temptation would, if you're all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty, everybody in the world would be knowing your name and seeking after you because they're afraid of you because they want what you have and jesus came and instead of exalting himself he made himself of no reputation the word there is he emptied himself not subtracting from his deity but by taking on humanity guys the key for you and i is to follow this example is to empty ourselves we need to be empty of self and you'll be amazed how well you'll get along with the world around you. 
still fully God, all-powerful, and yet took on the form of a bondservant. Look what it says. Made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. Now again, if you're almighty and you're coming, and you can take on any form you want, I'm thinking slave is probably the last choice. But Jesus came and took on the form of a bondservant. A bondservant is a slave by choice. One who chooses to be a servant even though he could be set free. One who says, my debt's been paid, but I choose to be your servant anyway. I indenture myself to you for a lifetime of my own free will. That's a bondservant. What a contrast between Jesus and Satan. Lucifer said, I will. I will be like the Most High. You know that, right? I will be. I will. I, I. And Jesus said, thy will. Thy will. Thy will be done. Lord, your will. You want to be Satan-like? I will. You want to be Christ-like? Thy will. Amen? No matter what's going on in life, Lord, thy will be done. Now look what it says there. Coming in the likeness of men. So he's still 100% God, but he took on humanity. Now understand this. He added 100% of humanity, which means he knew hunger, thirst, exhaustion, weariness. And not only did he think of others, but he paid a heavy price to serve them as well. Because he left heaven and came to earth. He went from glory to shame in a physical body. He went from being the master to being the servant. And he went from life and would now experience death. He permanently took on human, a human body. When we get to heaven, guess what? We're going to see the nail prints in his hands, the Bible says. He humbled himself for eternity out of his love for you. What a great and awesome God we serve to pay the price that we could not pay. What an awesome and loving God. Gospels, we see the public ministry of Jesus. And what is he doing? He's serving others. He's God, and what's he doing? He's serving others. The Bible said he had no place to lay his head. He never had any money. You notice that? People today say, if you're really walking with God, you'll be loaded. Give me a scripture, because you're taking it way out of context. Amen? You know what? I would rather be walking in the center of God's will than have all the money that Bill Gates has got. Amen? Because money doesn't profit you any. Now, again, as Christians, God's going to put money into our hands, but we're to use it for his glory, not ours. Amen? It's all his. But who did Jesus serve? Fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, the sick. He even washed Judas' feet not long before he betrayed him. That's our Savior. He's our example. Jesus is God and he served others. How much more should you and I? Verse 8. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus not only served others, but he sacrificed for them. We see the example here of humility, serving others and sacrificing for them. Many are willing to serve as long as it doesn't cost something. That's not service. It's really not. If you ever wonder what you're worth, remember what Jesus gave for you. And true sacrifices cost us something. How much did it cost Jesus? It says there he humbled himself. He took on humanity. He was obedient unto death, even to separation from the Father due to our sin. Death on the cross. Guys, may we never read those words and just go right by them. The cross of Christ was heavy duty. 
the most excruciating death ever experienced in the history of all mankind. And he did it because it was what we deserved, and he wanted to take our place. What a great God we serve. I don't have time to go into it, but we've talked about, again, just how heavy duty the cross of Christ is. All the suffering, the beating, the mocking, the scourging, the nails in the hands, the suffocation, his heart exploding, literally. All of that out of love for us. And more, most significant of all, knowing separation from the Father when the sin of all mankind was placed upon him. How humble was our Savior? How submitted was he even to death, death upon the cross? But no, his death was not the death of a martyr. It was the death of a Savior. Amen? And that's why, guys, we don't leave Jesus on the cross. You'll never hear me finish a message and Jesus died on the cross. Now, okay, I'll see you next week. He's risen. Amen? Amen. We need to remember that he didn't just stay there. We don't leave him on the cross. A missionary in Brazil was going from booth to booth checking out the wares at a festival and he came across a sign that said, Cheap Crosses. Cross of Christ is not cheap. Amen? It was paid for with a heavy price. We've seen Christ's humiliation. Let's finish up with His exaltation, verses 9 through 11. So we've seen the characteristics. He thought of others. He served others. He sacrificed for others. But most of all, look what He does. He glorifies God. Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name. I love this. The cross again was not the end, but the entrance to glory. He was highly exalted. To exalt to the highest rank and power. To raise to supreme majesty. You know what? I love this. That Jesus shows us the way up is down. Jesus humbled himself. What did God do? Exalted him. Jesus humbled himself. God exalted him. Jesus came and came of, with no reputation. Gave himself no reputation. And then it says the Father gave him the name which is above every name. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus Christ alone. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not anybody else. They're all sinners in need of a Savior. And as we're going to see in a few verses, they're going to deal with Jesus themselves. In His name, you know what's great about His name? We saw it, tried to describe it today. But in His name, there's access to the Father. Do you know that? In Jesus' name, I can come into the presence of Almighty God. There's power in the name of Jesus. He alone is the way. He alone is the truth. He alone is the life. And no man can come unto the Father but by Him. He's been given the name which is above every name. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and those under the earth. I think that covers it. <laughs> Jesus bent His knee to serve others, and the Father says, and every knee is going to bow to you. And those in heaven, all the angelic host, everyone who's there, all going to bow to Jesus Christ. Those on the earth, every man, woman, and child living on earth today, or who has ever lived on earth, is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Saddam Hussein is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Osama bin Laden is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Shirley MacLaine, who thinks she's God, is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Marilyn Manson is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Every religious leader, every king, every president, every politician, every rich, poor, young, old, every race, creed, color, every tongue, every nation will bow to Jesus Christ. Every one of them. You know, 
What an awesome thing. And remember that the next time you get whipped up about what's going on politically or in the world. Just remember, they're all going to bow to Jesus someday. But my heart is a bow now, not later. Bow into salvation, not into condemnation. Then it says, under the earth. That means Satan is going to bow to Jesus. He is a defeated foe. And in the end, he's going to be on his knees confessing, Jesus is Lord. And then last verse, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Not only will every knee bow, but every tongue will confess. Submission, not just in word, but in action. Satan will bow and confess. Gandhi will bow and confess. Reverend Moon will bow and confess. L. Ron Hubbard, the guy who wins the MVP in the Super Bowl today, is going to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen? We need to remember, guys, where we're headed and how great our God is. Not unto salvation, sadly, for some, but to condemnation, understanding that they rejected the very one who died for them. And notice what it says of Jesus' humility. What's the end result? The glory of the Father. Guys, when we humble ourselves, you know who gets glorified? The Lord does. When we puff ourselves up and promote ourselves, guess whose name gets harmed? When people know you're a Christian, you're harming Christ's name. It breaks the heart of God. Not, God not only gives grace to the humble, but through the humble, He is glorified. Guys, may we not lead Jesus on the cross and understand that we're all going to stand before Him one day and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My heart breaks for those in their arrogance who reject Him now. Who say, I'm not, I don't have to deal with Jesus. Yes, yes you do. And yes, you will. Amen? He came and humbled Himself to draw men back unto Himself. So in closing, joy in spite of people, by having a submissive mind, submissive mind by having the mind of Christ, unity through humility, esteeming others greater than yourself. You want joy? Jesus, others, yourself. And then Jesus, the ultimate example, perfect, holy, all-powerful God, humbled Himself and became a man. How much more should we humble ourselves? We're not perfect. We're not righteous apart from Him. We're not holy apart from Him. What do we have to be conceited about? Amen? May we humble ourselves. Four characteristics we can follow. Jesus thought of others. He served others. He sacrificed for others. And He glorified the Father. Jesus was humbled before men and exalted by the Father. Guys, choose one. You want to be exalted by men and humbled by the Father? are humbled by men and exalted by the Father. You know what? I'm, I'm so burdened for Santa Cruz, guys. I'm just, sometimes I drive around this town, I just start weeping for people. I'm so brokenhearted. Man, they need Jesus, don't they? May we not hide our light under a bushel anymore. May we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we love people supernaturally. May we humble ourselves. May we serve them that they might see Jesus in us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and worship your name. You're a great and an awesome God. And Lord, we come even now bowing before you and confessing that you are Lord. You are Lord of our lives. You're Lord over heaven. You're Lord of the earth. You're a great and an awesome God. Lord, I pray for anybody here today that doesn't know you, that they would not wait 
until Judgment Day to confess you as Savior. But Lord, they would confess you as Savior now and know that eternal joy that comes from intimate fellowship with the Creator of the universe, the one who loves Him so much He'd rather die than live without Him. Hadn't planned on doing it. I know the hour is late, but this is eternity. If you're here today and it's your desire to know Jesus Christ in an intimate and a personal way, to not walk out of here and confess Him later unto condemnation, but to confess Him now unto salvation, to know Him in an intimate and a personal way. I'm not asking you to join Calvary Chapel, but to simply come to a place of saying, I want Him to be my Savior. I believe that He is God. I thank you, for, thank you, Lord, for humbling Yourself and dying in my place. If it's Your desire to know for sure You're going to heaven, to have Him come and live inside of Your life, to walk with You the rest of Your life, and to know that one day You'll enter into His presence. If that's Your desire, I'm going to ask you to do something real simple. The Bible says you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If that's your desire, I just want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray a simple prayer with you. Is there anybody here at all? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see these who've raised their hand before you, desiring to confess you even now. Lord, I just pray and ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that right now, as they come with confessing hearts, that, Lord, you would forgive them for their sin, that you would fill them to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, that you would make them new creations in Christ, that they would walk with you the rest of the days of their life. Help us, Lord, as their brothers and sisters, to encourage them to hold up their hands. Help us all, Lord, to be a a picture of you to a world that so desperately needs you in the way that we love one another and the way that we serve all those around us. I thank you, Lord, that your word says that when one person is saved, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. We thank you there's a party up in heaven, even right now. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, and you're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand up and close in our worship song.